My name is Claudia Green, and this is She Did That, the podcast shining a spotlight on remarkable women who are breaking barriers and proving that greatness knows no gender. From female founders who have raised millions of pounds, the investors changing the landscape as we know it, to survivors of tragedy who have achieved the amazing and many more. We will share the stories of these incredible women who will inspire and empower you. In order to support us and these women, please subscribe on your viewing or listening channel of choice so we can continue our mission of sharing the stories that should and need to be heard. Today's guest came from Turkey with two suitcases, not knowing a soul in the UK. She went from selling vodka from pub to pub to raising $80 million for her deep tech startup and now has a new venture tackling pandemic of loneliness. I'm really excited to introduce founder and CEO of Street Bees, Tuche. T, thank you so much for being here. I'm really, really excited to talk to you. We've got a lot to delve into. It's my pleasure. <laughs> so just to start off with, I'd love to get more of a background on you. Obviously, you were born in Turkey, but I'd love to hear a bit more about your early life and your school and kind of what led you to London. Well, that's, that's a really good question. I haven't actually thought about it in a long time. Um, I was born in Istanbul and lived a, maybe like half of my life there. Very different setup. It's a massive city. The population is about 15 million now. And growing up in such a big city, especially as a girl, it was quite a different experience. But I think in a lot of ways that helped with the later life as I go through, came here for university, my working life, my startup journey, because mm. growing in, in, up in Istanbul is tough. Mm. And you have to try a lot of things, different methods. There's too many people, yeah. not enough opportunities. So mm. it makes you quite competitive and quite resilient. Mm. And culturally, how different is it in Turkey to, to the UK? That's such a great question. And I find that um, actually working in London really made me realize some of that. I think the biggest difference is the Turkish culture is very direct. So people communicate without any sugar coating, any, you know, trying to actually go around a topic. People say what they think. That's one big difference. The other one is we are very comfortable talking about money. And it's very old. British people are very awkward about money, aren't they? <laughs> Not all of them, but <laughs> I found it quite interesting that yeah. later when I was actually running Street Base, we started encouraging, especially our female um, employees, to get comfortable negotiating for money, either in sales or even for their own salaries. And that was a quite a stark difference for me to observe how mm. uncomfortable people are when it comes to the topic of money. That's true. But I think it's something that we need to get comfortable with. It shouldn't be such a taboo and I, I think I find women are less comfortable mm. talking about money and negotiating salaries than men well in my experience than men are um do you think by having sort of someone at the top top level management who is really really comfortable openly discussing money helps that 100%. And I think it also requires a lot of active investment in that. Um, you're absolutely right. When women are, and there are studies actually about that on average, when they're asking something for themselves, like a salary increase, they feel quite uncomfortable, but they're actually much better negotiators when they are negotiating on behalf of someone else. So it's just a bit of a taboo that as a woman, you know, you're expected to be taking care of other people, right? It's a little bit in our DNA to assume that, but we can easily 
teach and learn that it's also perfectly acceptable to be negotiating on your own behalf. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I had a friend of mine and she said, I'm going to ask for a little salary increase. And I said, okay, how much are you going to ask for? And she said, £5,000 a year more. And I said, you know that I've checked other people that are doing your job and you should be on about £20,000 more than you earn. Yes, but I sort of want to work my way up to it. I want to see sort of how it goes and then gradually, gradually move up. And I said, do you know what? Do me a favor. Go in there and ask for 30K more. And she said, there's absolutely no way that I'm doing that. And I said, please, for me. I said, see what happens. And I managed to convince her to do it. And she went in and she said, you know, I've checked the market and I know that I'm worth 30,000 pounds more. And they said, yeah, you're right. Okay, we'll up your salary by 30,000 pounds. I hope she took you out for it, did I? She did. (laughs) She was like, was it really that easy? And I said, you know what? You just, most men are bold enough to go and ask for it. I say most because not all. I'm not. Of course I'm not, not stereotyping. Of course but, not. But um, and not all women are, you know, too awkward to ask for it either. But in ter- statistically, you do see a massive imbalance when it comes to male and female salaries. And I think part of the reason for the gender pay gap was also because you know women weren't demanding as much money as as men were. That's not an excuse in any way, shape or form to pay a woman less than a man. Um, but I just think the approach was entirely different. How old were you when you moved to the UK? I know that you studied here. I'd love to hear a little bit more about, you did your PhD in Cambridge. Um, and dropped out. And dropped out. I was 23 when mm-hmm. I moved. Um, and this is really funny because I literally had a one-way ticket to Cambridge without having seen anywhere in the UK ever in my life. So it's brave. It, it was brave, but partly also ignorant, right? I have like to talk through it too much. So my options were a couple of universities in the US or a couple of options in the UK. And at that stage, I wanted to stay closer to family. Um, US is obviously much harder to travel back. And it was quite funny because I showed up with two big suitcases in Stansted Airport at 10 p.m. I guess that was the only flight coming in. By the time I made my way to Cambridge, it was already like past midnight. Everything is closed. It was raining and cold. And I, I literally thought, oh, my God, what did I do? <laughs> <laughs> How come I haven't even come and like seen the city before I literally packed my life and move? It turned out to be all fine. But yeah. the first couple of months were very, very hard. Cambridge is a very small town. And I remember the next day, one of my um, you know assigned mentors took me around. So we went to one of the towns and he showed me around. Oh, this is the city center. This is where the pubs are, etc. Right. It's the most important thing. Yeah. And then I said, okay, this is great. Now let's go to the next town. And it's like, this is it. (laughs) What do you mean this is it? This this is Cambridge. I was literally shocked to me because it was as small as my small neighborhood in Istanbul. And for us, you know, you have another hundred of those within Istanbul, right? So I had to adopt a lot living in a small place, which admittedly doesn't work for me. I didn't like it. So I moved back to London as quickly as I can. It's a completely personal preference, I think, what yeah. kind of environments you like. That must have been quite scary for you, though, turning up in a place you've never been before. And it's, you know, it's one thing going to a really large city, but you're going to a, a, a small town with no one. Did you come in literally knowing no one? Yeah, I, I knew no one in England. 
my English I thought was good, but it turns out it wasn't that great. <laughs> so I show up at Cambridge and then I start, uh, lectures were never a problem because um, you learn how to read and write pretty well, quite quickly. But when we were going to pub and then talking to people and they make jokes, you don't understand the jokes, they're not funny to you, you know? Yeah. We underestimate how actually hard it is to yeah. adapt. In a year, it was fine. Yeah. But the first year was, I would say it was more, new and interesting than scary I mean, there's nothing to be afraid of like you're gonna be fine but it was a lot of adoption that was required yeah I bet and how long did you study at Cambridge for before leaving so I did my master's degree there um, it was fully funded by Cambridge and then they gave me a position for a PhD which was also fully funded so it was a fantastic offer to say no to and everyone in my family is a professor my dad is a maths professor, my uncle is a physics professor. So I was like, okay, surely that's what you do. Like when you finish your master's degree, you go on to a PhD program. Mm. It wasn't the right decision for me. And it was so interesting. The first year of my PhD, I lived in India. I was at the time working with the World Bank and we were doing research on understanding how different World Bank programs are having a different type of impact on poverty alleviation in India. It was the most interesting year of my life. Like we started traveling from Kolkata down to Chennai, went to Bangalore, and then up all the way to north um, around Gurgaon, New Delhi, that region where there are a lot of textile factories. That part I loved because it was an anthropologic research. We were sitting down with families who lives at an income under a dollar a day. Oh, wow. And we were basically trying to see the impact mm -hmm. that these different World Bank policies, including something like microfinance, mm. have on their lives. Yeah. And it was very interesting. I learned a lot. It was character building, actually. I bet. But when I came back to Cambridge after that, after a year of field research, and I'm sitting in a room, it's constantly raining, it's very gray, there's not much to do. I felt like this is just not my calling. I published quite a lot of books, book chapters, mm. articles, wrote reports for World Bank. And then after that, I felt like I'm done. Yeah. And time to move on into the business world. But I think that's very brave. I think a lot of people who get into PhD programs think, right, now now I'm in it. I have to actually go ahead and finish it. And it's, it's long. It's four years. And that's a huge commitment when you've already done an undergraduate degree and a master's. It's a big, it's a big chunk of your twenties, isn't it? Hundred percent. If you're enjoying it, fantastic. You mm. should go ahead and do it, especially if it's a funded position. Mm. You know, it's a fantastic opportunity. Mm. But at the same time, you know, if you're feeling like this is just not for me, I don't want to go on to a teaching position, mm. or I want to try something else. It's also perfectly fine just to move on. You moved to London after that. Um, Tell me about your first job and how that came about, because you obviously switched worlds quite dramatically. You've gone yeah. from um, an educational world where perhaps you don't earn much or any money into a pretty high pressured melting pot of <laughs> competition and masculinity. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. The academic world probably have done a lot better than the business world in terms of diversity. Mm -hmm. Definitely true. Um, but it's actually quite funny because I left Cambridge and decided to move to London in 2008. Mm -hmm. I don't know what oh, I was gosh. thinking. There were no jobs. 
right? Like you move to a city, we had expensive city mm. and there are no jobs. Mm. And that was tough, right? I started applying for jobs. A lot of big companies already frozen hiring at that point. So interestingly, I was at the airport, met someone. I was waiting to go back to Istanbul for a quick trip. And I met someone who's also from Istanbul who was trying to market his vodka to London. And it was an unsuccessful trip for him. It didn't go anywhere. And he was really struggling. He was very depressed. I was very depressed because I didn't have a job. And we got talking. And then I said to him, like, look, you carry all that vodka. It's already like in storage in London anyway. Leave it. I'll give it a go. If I can sell it, I take a cut. If I can't sell it, you take it back. Like, there's nothing to lose, right? For neither of us, really. Because neither of us are actually doing anything else. So it was quite funny. And then he let me do it. And then I ended up selling in what we call seeding strategy. So rather than going straight to supermarkets, which is much harder to penetrate, mm. you start with bars and pubs, which are easier because they give you a chance usually and see if the customers like it, right? Yeah. So I started just literally walking into different pubs oh and goodness. clubs with like, you know, taster vodka. I repackaged it to make it more luxury, etc. It went so well. I made more money that year than the following years when I got actually a proper job. <laughs> oh my goodness. It was hilarious. That's real hustler mentality <laughs> there. You've gone from doing a PhD in Cambridge. To selling vodka to, to going clubs. pub to pub. Yeah, my dad wasn't proud. <laughs> Although I think it's, it's, quite innovative that you had the idea in the first place when someone said, oh, I've got a load of vodka and you thought, you know what, I'll sell that for you and I'll go door to door. And you think, I think that's actually really important in the entrepreneurship journey. When you look at the entrepreneurs in London, about 80%, there are some really interesting studies on this, come from business families, right? They actually don't have to make a living, And that completely changes the perspective. Now, a lot of them still are very ambitious people and they become very successful. But actually, it's very few percentage, it's a small percentage of people who come into being an entrepreneur. It is not by any means an equal access or equal opportunity environment, right? But while it's harder if you don't have a family behind you supporting with your business activities, actually, there's a lot of compensating factors because you develop a way of no matter what, I'm going to survive. No matter what, I'm going to find a way to make a living. And actually, that mindset becomes incredibly important in an entrepreneurial journey. I'd be interested to know how you've gone from selling vodka (laughs) to Cambridge, selling vodka and then into private equity. Yeah, Seems yeah. Seems like a logical move. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, so I started applying for jobs. I did want to go into consultancy mm-hmm. once I moved to London because it's a, quite an interesting job. People are, you know, working on a lot of different types of projects, a lot of variety in what you do. So I had to wait for the consultancies in London to open up their hiring again. And then I had some friends from Cambridge who helped me get an interview. Um, I mean, it's an incredible world, right? You later, when I was hiring in the same companies, I know that you get thousands of applications. You're going to hire two people. Yeah. Right. And it's a very tough environment. But once I got the interviews, they went quite well. I got an offer and then they start you nine months later because they have this class system, right? Everyone Uh starts at the same time because Mm -hmm. they're going to train you, et cetera. So I went into Parfenon Group, which got acquired by EY, um, and I went straight into private equity practice. So our job was to help private equity companies Mm. make acquisitions, mergers, 
or help them with their portfolio companies mm. to be able to grow them internationally, you know, accelerate their organic growth, etc. Mm-hmm. It was super interesting. Um, much tougher environment for sure compared yeah. to our uh, relaxed life at Cambridge. Mm. But I loved it. Like it was really interesting for me. You hear a lot that going into consulting and private equity, although it's very common for graduates to go into that, it's quite long hours, mm. very, very challenging. Day to day, what was it? What was it actually like? Oh, I was insane. Like you have no life. Absolutely, you have no life. For First three years, I think, um, you go in at nine, you don't leave till midnight. Wow. It was literally like 15 hour easily working days. Yeah. We were lucky we didn't have a lot of weekend work, so you can actually recover on the weekends. But during the week, like I wouldn't make it home before like midnight or 1 a.m. Most of the time, you just have time to like sleep, take a shower, go back to work. That's it. Like that's your life. And that's tough. Of course, that's very tough. But I think... Our generation had a different perspective on this. Like for me, that was at the same time, I'm given a great opportunity. Yeah. I'm actually working with the CEOs of the most interesting companies in the UK, right? And they give me time. We sit down, you know, we are helping them with their strategy and growth, et cetera. But Mm. they're also helping us to learn how a business is run, Mm. how they operate, how they make decisions. So from my perspective, it's not a regret at all. I think it's just, you you know, you're young, you have energy, you're paying your dues. Um, and then it eases out after that anyway, as you get more senior, mm. it gets slightly easier, but by slightly easier, you still don't leave before 9 p.m. You I know, mean, that's tough. Slightly easier. <laughs> you can see how people do it in their 20s and then sure. perhaps burn out quite quickly and then have to step back. I'd love to know how Street Bees came about. I personally have heard of Street Bees probably about five, six years ago, but that's because I'm in the recruiting yeah, world. Yeah, of course. But I think a lot of, most people have heard of Street Bees. Um, so I'd love to know how the idea came about and how you got started. And then I really want to delve into the fundraising aspect of it as well. Very happy to. So actually the idea came from a problem as consultants and working in the M&A space. Um, we had a big problem in terms of access to data. So when you're looking at a company, you're evaluating and you're going to decide on their valuation, you, you need to do a lot of analysis. Some of this data comes from the company itself, but you also have to do benchmarking, competitive comparisons. And it was quite interesting, actually. We were working with the Justit team pre-IPO, and we were trying to understand the market size that they can access after IPO, if they extend to Brazil, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Russia at the time, etc., right? There's no data. Yeah. So we literally had to find people in Brazil, go street by street, and every time they see a restaurant, they press a button. And if the restaurant does take away, they press another button. And we had to generate our own data sets like this, right, for mm-hmm. these decisions to be made. Made no sense to me. I was thinking that, well... There are people who pass by these restaurants in Brazil every day. They all have a mobile phone. So if we find a way to tap into them while they are just roaming around, getting on with their life, we can actually generate these data sets faster in a more reliable way and also with time series. Because when you do ad hoc data collection like this, it's one-off. What we don't know is, did it grow more than what it was last year? Is the pretty static number? And the trend is super important in your decision if you're going to acquire a company or not. 
And I guess I'm a little bit impulsive that way. Um, I just then left. I really liked the idea. And I spoke to a few companies in research. I told them that they should do it. And as a buyer, I would buy their services if they did do it. But these companies are very traditional, very old school. They said, well, that doesn't sound like data to us. Well, it is data, mm. but this is about now 10 years ago, unstructured data wasn't considered data then, right? It changed now. Um, so I decided that, okay, if they're not willing to do it, I can totally see the opportunity. I've done six years in consulting PE world, so I'm just going to leave and start a new business, new chapter. That's very brave. I think one theme that I can see with you is that you've done some very brave things. <laughs> you've left your country, gone to somewhere you don't know. Then you've gone door to door selling vodka to make ends meet. You've gone into a heavy, heavy, heavy 16 hour a day job and then you've just left. Yeah. And to start your own venture, which is really admirable. I think a lot of people would be too scared to do that. What kind of drove you and gave you, was it, was it the belief in the idea itself or was it more, right, I've done my time here. I can afford to take a bit of time off and see if this works. I think we all have that uh, courage inside ourselves, right? And why maybe is it easier for me to make those decisions? It's very simple. I think about, I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen? It fails. So what? Mm. I get another job. Yeah. Like, it's not that big of a deal. We live in a big city. There are a lot of jobs. Yeah. Even if it's a struggle for a couple of months, you know, this is something I want to do. And I'll give myself a chance to do it for a year. And if it doesn't work out, I'll get another job. See, that's what I love. I think a lot of people who start ventures say, what's everyone going to think of me if this fails? Okay. I know for me, when I started my business, I thought, um, now all of these people know that I've started a business. And people see me out. They congratulate me. Oh, my gosh, you founded your own business. Well, founding your own business doesn't mean you have a successful business. It just means that you founded a business. Um, so I think there's definitely a sense of being worried mm. about what other people think. But I think that I can see a theme with you that you back yourself and you're confident enough. Yeah. And let's stay on that topic. I think it's very interesting because I got a call from a very close friend. She's an incredibly successful female entrepreneur. Mm. She was just having a really bad day. Mm. And we started talking and then she said to me and, you know, she's at the moment um, just thinking through just so that we don't reveal identity. <laughs> um, It'd be juicier if we did. But. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. <laughs> Um, and, and she was just having a really bad week and she, there are, you know, circumstances which makes it f feel that way. But mm -hmm. her biggest worry was if I make that decision, which is actually probably the right decision for her at this stage, what is everyone going to think of me? Mm. And, you know, what is going to be my image in the world? Like this entrepreneurship, my business is my identity. Mm. And if it's not there, like, who am I? Right. Mm. And I think what we discussed with her is probably relevant for a lot of people that, honestly, no one cares. Mm. They are, you're not the center of their world. They might just maybe care for about like three minutes when mm. they first hear the news that you left or you failed or you closed down a shop, whatever. Honestly, it's not going to take more than three minutes of their time. Mm. They are going to move on. Mm. But you... 
you're gonna feel the pain. You're gonna be upset. You're gonna like drag yourself down. You and your immediate family are the only people who actually care, right? Yeah. We exaggerate in our heads what our image is in public, you know, what people think. The moment you realize that people don't care, then you don't need to care either, right? It's your decisions. It's your own happiness. If I really worried what we put people would think when I drop out of PhD, I would have made myself miserable doing something I really didn't want to do. I think it really liberates you to remember that no one cares. So you can actually do whatever you want to do and people will just get on with it. Yeah, it's true. And I think when people are calculating the risks when they're starting a business, I definitely think a big factor in in the decision-making process is what will people think of me? Um, obviously, there are a lot of other factors, you know, financially, can I make this work? Does this fit with my personal life? But I do I do think just based on the amount of founders I've spoken to, there is this mm. appearance, keeping up with appearances um, side to it that I think it's a shame because I know a lot of people that haven't taken risks because they were worried about how it would look. Yeah. For sure. And I think that really probably brings us to understanding how you define failure and what it means to you, right? Because again, it liberates you in decision making. I think it's a great sign of successful leadership mm. to know when to walk away. And this is something I've done a lot of negotiation um, classes back in the time. I studied political science in my undergrad. And one of the things that we used to teach people is even in a negotiation table, you do need to know where your boundaries are and mm. what is the time to walk away. Mm. And that actually facilitates achieving a result in, in a negotiation. Mm. If you have no boundaries and no matter what happens, you're not going to walk away. That's not a healthy situation at all. So if you come to like what, what failure means, I actually struggle to understand what people mean with it um, most of the time. In, in my thinking, there's no such thing as failure. Mm. There are attempts, there are trials and tests, mm. some, of it, some of which succeeds and goes in the way that you planned, mm. some of which goes in another way. Mm-hmm. Let's not call it failure. They I just like that. went in a direction you yeah. didn't think it would. You learn a lot from it, right? You develop as a person. Out, out of it and then if you tried something enough times and your learning showed you that this is no longer the way I want to go you change path yeah. I think that's a very rational actually that that is the rational way to move forward rather than just repeating the same thing just with the worry that oh I'm not going to accept that this thing didn't go in the direction I planned we don't have to go too much into the philosophy of that, but that actually comes from a very anthropocentric view of the world that humans can control events. Mm-hmm. If you take a more Buddhist philosophy or a, some sort of an understanding of you know being in an omnipresent existence with the world, mm-hmm. you accept that you are so small and you are so unimportant within the grand scheme of things A, no one cares what happens to you, what you do, and B, you can't control things. Mm. So you can actually learn to flow 
with how things are going and try to shape the river a little in the direction you would like it to go. That's all you can do. But you can't actually make the river that's going that way turn around and go that way. And that's, I think, why, like, it never even appeared in my cognitive radar, the concept of failure. This feels like a therapy session. I'm loving it. <laughs> I'm, I'm benefiting from it. <laughs> so you thought of Street Bees. Yeah. How did we go from idea to a running business with millions of pounds in the bank? <laughs> Let's start from the beginning. Um, fundraise number one and kind of what you had to do to get there. Yeah, absolutely. So it was so much fun. Like I had so much fun building Street Base. So I reconnected with a friend of mine from Cambridge. We were at the same college when we were studying. He was a mathematician. I was doing political economy. And he also has moved, have moved back by then to Australia. And he was already doing a startup. Mm-hmm. So I spoke to him and he really liked the idea as well. They couldn't raise for the startup they were working on so he was going to move on anyway Mm -hmm. so he moved back to London and joined me and then there's some really important people who changed the direction of the business Um, I met Christopher Spray who is a well-known investor angel investor in the in the space and it was so funny we were sitting in the Ozone Cafe in in Shoreditch and I gave him a two and a half hour pitch terrible a pitch cannot possibly take two and a half hours. And then he listened patiently. And then he told me at the end, Tuche, this is a fantastic business. It's going to be very successful. Your only challenge is going to be, it's so complex. It took you two and a half hours to explain it to me. You're going to have to really work on how you communicate it to investors. Then he introduced us to Robin Klein from Local Globe. We sat down with Robin and George Henry with my co-founder. And that meeting was pure magic. You know, you go into a meeting sometimes, you come out of that meeting feeling so energized. You're buzzing. You're buzzing. And you're like, let's go. Let's do this. And I always tell people, if you don't walk out of an investor meeting feeling that way, that's not the right investor for you. Because a great investor is going to ask you enabling questions, right? And you start bouncing ideas of each other. And I think both sides at the end of it were even more excited about the business and Local Globe led our um, seed round together with Octopus Ventures at the time. We closed the first wow, race. you didn't mess around with your investors, did you? You you picked the top one. There is definitely luck there as well. We got lucky that, you know, we met the right people at the right time, but also we went all in, right? We gave all our energy, all our focus to make it work. And how much, in terms of preparation, how far had you come with the concept itself? So when you were presenting to investors, How much did you actually have at that point? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I think as a founder, you always delay. You always, you're a little bit perfectionist probably. You want to have more before you go to people. I would always recommend to people that when you think it's not good enough, it is. You should just bite the bullet and go with it. There wasn't much at all. So, well... We had Coca-Cola and Unilever already as clients. Okay, so quite a lot. (laughs) That was very good. Yeah. Product wasn't developed much at all. There was very little done because we couldn't afford to hire a tech team yet. Yeah. And uh, but we got the clients, right? Yeah. And very big clients. Yeah, that's hu- that's a huge deal. Yeah. So and you have to really fall back on 
what you are able to bring to the table. Neither my co-founder nor I were developers. Mm -hmm. So we couldn't build the technology, right? We had to hire people to help us build the technology. But what we did know how to do very well was convincing people and selling. Mm -hmm. So we just erred on that side. Okay, that's one skill we do have. So let's go get some customers with the vision. Mm -hmm. Being very open that tech is not there yet, but they came in, they put down the money. With that money, then we did go ahead and start building the technology. And then, you know, with the traction we had, with the success of the product at that stage, we were able to raise. As soon as we raised, we hired an amazing technology team, including our CTO at the time. Um, and all of a sudden, we went from a two people team to a seven people team. Right. So I'm hearing a lot about the successes and the highs. I want to hear more about the challenges and any tough situations that you encountered where you thought, I'm not sure if this is going to work or I don't know if I can personally do this anymore. Did you have any moments of doubt there at all? Oh yeah, every day. <laughs> there are a lot more of those yeah. than the success moments for sure. So we agreed with my co-founder for our mental health that we're going to have a yearly check-in. Mm -hmm. I think it was in April. Every year in April, we would go out for a nice dinner and then decide, are we committing another year or not? Mm -hmm. So at that meeting, if we haven't reached our own personal milestones that no one else knows, just the two of us know, right? Mm -hmm. It's not commitments to investors or anything. Mm -hmm. It's our decision. If we haven't reached those milestones, we could have always pulled the plug and say, this is it. Yeah. He was a Morgan Stanley trader. I have a consultant's private equity background. We can always go back to jobs, right? That we needed to do. So that's what we did. Like we basically set milestones. But why does that help with your mental health? Because during that one year, then you don't get to question. You don't get to doubt. You make the commitment and then you just basically delay all the questioning to that point in time where you are going to actually go through all the factors and make a decision again. Because if you let yourself at every corner, at every night, bad day, bad days are going to happen pretty much like every day, yeah. then you're not going to continue, right? We had another rule that really helped me. Three major catastrophes per day. So if a fourth one comes, oh my goodness. you are basically, you know, I'm at capacity. I cannot handle a fourth catastrophe today. So it's going to have to wait. Jokes aside, it allows you to prioritize, right? So for yeah. example, if a major customer's dashboard is not working and your champion is about to present the solution to the CEO, mm. that's a catastrophe, right? Like you, you can't have that, but it's going to happen because the product is not reliable enough yet. It's not stable or consistent enough yet. I remember literally shipping laptops from our office in Shoreditch to Blackfriars, where Unilever is, in a cab, because we couldn't fix whatever was wrong in their computers. They were using Explorer, we built for Chrome, whatever. We instead sent a laptop and the CEO meeting was saved, right? They presented with other problems. So you have to be always super practical. Let's not worry about, why is this not working? Are we building the right thing? There's no time for those questions. Solve the problem very practically. And then you can go back and speak with your engineers and say, guys, we need this for working in all browsers. Now, can we do that? I like this four catastrophe yeah, max. limit. 
see, I should I should take that advice yeah. personally. <laughs> I've been on the floor before, tearing my hair out oh. after about catastrophe six, thinking, oh God. <laughs> "I don't know if I can do this anymore." <laughs> but I think it's always important to highlight that most days are tough, yeah, and it's not glamorous. No. And you know, I went to a party recently, and someone who hadn't seen me in a really long time, they said, "Oh, you're you're bawling." And I said, "Why do you think that?" And they said, "You travel. I see your pictures on Instagram." I said, "Honestly." That's the glab. <laughs> 12 hours before this photo, I was having a mental breakdown on my floor, crying. I'd phoned my mum. I'd said, I'm, I'm throwing the towel in. I'm not doing this anymore. At the time, I had eight employees who were relying on me and I said, I can't do can't. it. I can't. Because it's a lot, it's a big weight to carry. And I think when the more you grow, the more risk there is. People think, you know, as you get more and more successful and you you build a more successful company, then it gets easier. But in fact, that's completely the opposite because mm. you have so many more people that are reliant True. on you. And you had, how many members of staff did you grow We went to? up to 200, yeah. So that's 200 lives yeah. to, to take into account. Did that pressure ever get to you or do you feel like you just can't go there? <laughs> No, that's, I, I guess that's not the way I think about it. Um, it's really interesting what you're saying, right? It's probably more about believing deep down things are going to be fine mm. and keep reminding yourself that, right? No matter how hard things are, it may be unpleasant. Mm. I may not have fun and I may not even sleep, <laughs> but things are going to be fine. Yeah. And I think you got to keep repeating that to yourself and then, you know, once every six months, once a year, review the situation and make a decision again. I had another really good advice. I had a very dark period where I think it was four years in, five years in, you know, we went through 100% year-on-year growth years, raised a lot of money, grew the team massively. We got to China, India, US. We had people in France, Switzerland on, on the ground. Amazing. And then you hit a slump. It may be because of a recession or it may be because you don't know, right? And then we had a year where we grew 40% year on year. For a VC-backed startup, that's not good. You know, that's not a great year. Now what? And if you, sometimes you don't even know immediately what the reason is. Very common problem for a lot of startups. And I also started feeling like, okay, you can keep delaying not asking the question for a year, but that day is going to come and you're going to ask that question. And there were definitely times I felt, I don't want to do this anymore. Mm. Not that I can't do it. I don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to live like this anymore, right? No life, no sleep, like constant pressure and stress. And I hope you wouldn't mind me saying this. Um, I had a chat with Robin at that point, right? We sat down. He's a very experienced entrepreneur and investor. And I told him, and I'm, I'm expecting him to say to me that, what are you talking about? We invested so much money in you and in the business. No, he didn't say any of that. He said to me that, Tucci, you're doing this only because you want to do this. If you no longer want to do this, you should leave. That I mean, that's very unusual. <laughs> How liberating. He's, he's, got, he's got skin in the game there. And he does have skin in the game, yeah. but he did the right thing because yeah. he knows a depressed, unhappy founder is not going to be a successful founder. He showed me something there because I walked out of that room, first feeling very relieved if I do decide to leave. Yeah. None of these people are going to feel like, oh, you disappointed us, you let us down. He was like, it is another business. 
you know, in the grand scheme of things, nothing is that important. Don't be miserable, right? But also it made me realize, he reminded me, yeah, I am here and I am doing this business because I want to, yeah. right? Yeah. And then, you know, in a couple of weeks, I put myself back together and then started feeling like, all right, we're going to do this. You know, I found the energy to go again yeah. and see, can we come up with another approach? And then it got really exciting because we partnered with OpenAI and we always worked so far on the deep technology for building knowledge graphs mm -hmm. using NLP, which was quite unique at the time when we started doing this. A lot of knowledge graphs rely on um, discrete numerical data, right? We took text, image, videos, voice, what we call unstructured data, and started building taxonomies and a knowledge graph system on that, which was unheard of at the time, right? So it was super exciting, but then things got even more exciting when we started tapping into large language models. This is four years ago, before GPT came out. And then I also had a new CTO coming in at that stage who was a very experienced machine learning person. And that new technology gave me the excitement for another four years. At what point did you, because in total you've raised 80 million pounds? Dollars. Dollars, 80 million dollars. How many stages, series, sorry? Too many. <laughs> <laughs> um, how many did we do? Again, this is like the not part of the um, um, glam story, right? I mean, if, if, a, if a newspaper is asking, the answer is we did seed series A and series B. Okay. If you're asking, the reality <laughs> is there were bridging rounds, mm. there were convertible loans mm. to make the payroll. Um, there were stressful. bank debts, oh you know, goodness. we had venture debts. Not stressful, it's just part of the game, right? You just have to keep, like my main job mm. as the CEO is literally before everything else, people get paid. Yes. You don't have a more important job. It's not investor milestones. It's not even client deliverables. Your main job, get people paid. So if you're actually in a situation where you're not going to make the payroll, you're just going to have to find that money, yeah. right? And if that's a you know convertible loan, venture debt, or bridging, whatever it is, you're just going to have to do it. So there were a few of those small amounts. Series B was a 30 million pounds round. So that was a quite a large round led by Lakestar, but we also had a venture debt uh, arm at that stage. Mm -hmm. Why we do that? Because as a founder, you get diluted less mm -hmm. if you take loans rather than just selling equity. So I would always recommend to people from the moment the banks are prepared to give you a loan, take it, right? It's actually a cheaper way mm -hmm. of financing the business in the long run if it's a successful business. Yes, but arguably it sounds like in your case, that had you not had the right investors at the very beginning, you may not have ever so true. got to that stage. So I mean, true. if you hadn't had Robin Klein and, and Local Globe, then arguably, you know, you wouldn't have had that same mentorship and, and direction. I can't thank them enough, 100%. And I think in a founder's life, having the right mentors are very important, right? I think at this stage, Local Globe is one of the most well-known um, funds for seed funding. And it was in the news actually a couple of days ago, they generated the most unicorns in the European ecosystem, yeah. right? And I'm so happy for them and they totally deserve it because I think it's one of the most founder-friendly funds. Now, I had other people I worked with and I'm also now angel investing and mentoring a lot of other founders the stories of that not being the case are more often. Mm -hmm. 
So if you're not having funded by, if you are not funded by a very founder-friendly fund, or if you're working with a partner who is not necessarily is in your corner, that's okay. You can still make it work because most people are going to be in that situation, at least at some part of your journey. I know so many stories like that. And there are ways to deal with that. You know, there are ways to deal with that. Putting boundaries is very important. For example, I hear for a lot from friends, um, this investor we got in is WhatsApping me Saturday night and expects a response. I'm like, what do you mean expects a response? Like, is, it, is he actually saying on the WhatsApp, you have to answer back to me in 20 minutes? No, it's in your head. Yeah, that's interesting. Boundary setting is incredibly important. Super important. Yeah. You have to have your life. When people WhatsApp message me on um, these kind of matters, my reply is actually a template. Thanks for your note. Would you please email me? I'll get back to you as soon as I can. So you teach them. That's not the way to communicate with me, yeah. right? Because you're stressing me. I'm yeah. A stressed founder is not good for anyone, yeah. right? So let's just take it a notch down, right? If you have a few people who are on your side and who are more mature, more uh, experienced, you can also get them to talk to other investors. That's a really good strategy. Like sometimes people panic. It's also not their fault. You don't know their funds mechanisms. Mm -hmm. It may be that they are getting a lot of pressure from their own CEO or from their own LPs and they're just passing it down to you. Very possible. Call it out. I think there's nothing better than open communication. I had one investor I was really struggling with. He was stressing me out a lot. And I told him that. I said, I come out of every conversation we have feeling depressed, oh my God. unsuccessful, and you are literally making me feel I'm not good enough to do this. So we have two options. That's brave of you to say that. It's, it's, it's right. It opened a path for both of us to move on. I told him that we have two options. You can step down from your role in our business, mm. assign someone else. Yeah. This is not your fault. Our communication mechanisms are just clashing, right? We're just not on the same page. Or you can help me. Right? Like, we, we're going to do this. We have a very clear path. We're going to move forward with that. Here are two things you can help me with. Right? But the way this is working is not working for me. Right? And people need to know. They may not be aware. And he was shocked when I told him that. He was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I never realized that was the impact on you. I was like, literally, I'm dreading meeting you now. Do you want to be the That's person? Honest. <laughs> well, that comes back to Turkish directness, I guess. <laughs> But it's so useful because you're setting boundaries and you're protecting yourself, but you are also um, protecting the relationship that you have in a business sense and, yeah. and how you can move forward because it's not constructive. So tell me a bit more about your decision because you stepped down mm -hmm. as CEO. How did you come to that decision? Did you have one of your yearly dinners and say, no, I'm out? <laughs> we literally did, yeah. It's, and again, I'm actually very proud of that decision. Why did we do that? So Streetbiz grew to a place where we were making, I think I left around um, $1.2 million a month, so roughly like $14, $15 million a year annual revenue. Business is more stable and it's actually getting, last year we grew 37% year on year, right? So it's now at a stage, it's like a good mid-sized business growing at a healthy rate, right? And it's not exciting for me. And I think that's okay to say that. It's a, it's a nice, healthy business for the right CEO, very interesting gig, yeah. right, to do. 
But what I got get excited about is implementing new technologies, right? Taking it to people, what is actually like mind-blowing technological solution. And I realized we had that meeting with my co-founder and we said to each other that, okay, this is it. Yeah. We've done what we can. You know, the business reached its certain limits. Mm. So also more importantly, the pull factor was very strong. Mm. At Streetbees, in our research, we realized that about 60% of the modern society, through the data we are collecting, we can see is consistently suffering from loneliness, endemic loneliness, right? It was becoming actually quite chronic at that stage. And we had a lot of follow-up research. We did secondary research to understand why is this happening. We are losing intimacy. We are losing connection. Technology has a role that it's playing there. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's more than that, right? There's, there are a lot of reasons for that, which probably we don't have the time to go into. We wanted to do something about that. To me, that is like probably even a bigger problem than COVID. COVID came and went and, you know, obviously it was incredibly hard to deal with and we lost a lot of lives. We are now out of it to a great extent. Whereas this loneliness, it's one of the number one reasons for um, depression, heart attacks, and actually it has a more hefty impact on the healthcare and the total cost for NHS than COVID. We're just not really realizing how big a problem that is. So we we said that we want to do something about this. And we wanted to apply similar deep technology using generative AI and large language models to bring a solution to the world that helps us to get more intimate and close with each other. Okay, I like that a lot. I mean, COVID was definitely a weird time. Very, very strange times. But I, I, I do think you're right. I do think it further highlighted this pandemic of loneliness that everyone has experienced that people often only associate with elderly people but I think we don't realize that so many people are, are lonely you might go to the office and be around people all day but when it comes to your intimate relationships can you share can you be yourself around them yeah we had records from people I have three kids and a husband and I feel like no one understands me. No one is listening to me. I don't have a goal in life. What happens? Mm. Why are we like this? And then we actually see the index. This is less so. Fewer people feel this way when you go to Vietnam, Indonesia, or even within Europe. It's uh, less often to see this in Italy, right? In Spain. So what is the reason of that? It really comes down to connections. So it's not sunshine and pasta. Well, there's that too, <laughs> right? There's definitely the food. Food plays a big role, but also as a social glue. Yeah. Right. So this is this is how we come to this idea. We're building now a business called Alchemy. Mm-hmm. And what Alchemy does is it's your personal matchmakers. And our starting point is to find love, but someone who you can deeply connect with. The depressive impact of the current dating apps, how it's creating this whole ghosting culture, swiping. We've all been ghosted a few times. 100%. I don't know anyone in our age groups who hasn't experienced that. It's a horrible thing, isn't it? It's absolutely, we all hate it, (laughs) but we all still use it, right? Because there are not many other, well, we think there are not many other options. And the whole idea of, dreading a date, right? Like people are not even wanting to go anymore because it doesn't go more than a first date. 
people just you know disappear from earth um after a date but even also like not getting any matches i mean this is really interesting if you look at the dating stats women get overwhelmed by with too many matches mm -hmm. but then people are not properly responding or dates are not going anywhere mm -hmm. and many men 80% of men in dating apps hardly get any matches at all imagine how depressing that is dating apps created a dating fatigue they created an illusion that we have too many options to choose from, which is not true, it's an illusion, but that illusion led to a place where we feel every single conversation I have or every single date is disposable. I can just move on to the next one. Exactly, but I think that's, that's generally the problem here is that people are going on dates or getting into relationships and they're saying, but maybe I could find a better connection or maybe I could find someone better looking or, you know, it's constantly striving for more 100%. and more and more. And I think that's so toxic. Um, and it's so different from, you know, back in the old days when- You meet someone in a pub. <laughs> organically, yes. Instead of matching and then meeting and having three dates and then you think, oh my God, I can see myself walking down the aisle with you and then you never hear from them again. 100%. And I think that <laughs> has really took its toll in on our mental health. Yeah. To the extent that like some of my girlfriends now tell me that I don't want to even go on at any date because I don't think it's going to go anywhere and I'm so sick of disappointment. I can totally understand that. Mm. My challenge personally was when you go to dating apps, you have hundreds, thousands of matches mm. that you need to go through. What is my criteria? I want to be with someone who is independent, adventurous, intelligent, and, oh, hang on a minute, I can't filter by any of those in the dating apps. I don't care about height. I don't care about a couple of images, right? And it didn't- Neither. Well, we all care about a little. You have to have chemistry, hence the name of the company, Alchemy. But it's not the only criteria, right? Like you can meet someone who's incredibly good looking that you are feeling quite attracted to. And you might even have a couple of, you know, really fun dates, etc. But yeah. you're going to get to a stage you know, they're not going to be consistent, reliable. Mm. And, you know, when you're having a really hard day at work, you're on the floor, they may not be the person to pick you up or no. make, feel, you know, make you feel good about yourself. Well, I think values change as well because, you know, if I in, in my 20s, if, if I'd gone on a date with someone and they said that they were emotionally available, stable, reliable and loyal, I would have fallen asleep. And now I've, I've, I've never heard something so exciting in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And that's totally fine. Our preferences change. Yeah. And the dating apps are not built for people who are looking for a meaningful, deep connection. I don't think dating apps have any problem for earlier stages of our life when we are looking to have some fun, some adventures, meet lots of people. And... People should do that. That's a lot of fun. But then either by age or by stage of life, whatever it is, you reach a point where you're like, okay, I want a life partner. Mm. It's more important to me at this stage that this person is like, you know, behind me in my decisions, makes me, you know, have a great life, enjoy life together. And that's why we build Alchemy now. So we have about 80 different variables which are optimized, and this is really the key point, in an algorithm that is curated just for you. 
all dating apps have a single algorithm with the same rules and same weights, assuming we all want the same thing. The truth couldn't be further away from that. We absolutely don't want the same thing, right? For me, open-mindedness and independence might be the most important thing. For you, reliability and loyalty might be the most important thing, right? So what we do is we speak to you. We speak to you. Luna, the bot, speaks to you, which is generated with Gen AI, and asks you a lot of questions about what worked and didn't work in your previous relationships, how it made you feel. Good, it's like a counselor. It's totally like a counselor. It learns you. It understands you. It builds an algorithm for you. I'm firing my therapist. <laughs> and then it literally ranks all the eligible bachelors in London against your priorities. And we handpick them and personally introduce you to each other because we already did the calculation what he wants and what you want is a fantastic match to have a successful long-term relationship. And then we basically put you guys in touch to meet. And we were going to make five, six introductions like this in a you know course of a month to see, to give you time to evaluate and then give us feedback. With the feedback, we keep updating the algorithm. I love that. I really, really love that. Well, we are taking better users. So if you're interested, drop me a note. <laughs> I might be available. <laughs> thank you so much for being here what I wanted to end on was you've got a lot of um characteristics I've noticed that enable you to be successful in 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 your mind what do you feel is important in in terms of attributes and attitudes that you need to bring to the table to to be successful oh that's such a good question I think Probably thinking about it, the most important one is resilience, mm -hmm. right? I mean, growing up in a primary school classroom with 80 other kids, you know, and I'm so used to whatever I want to do, the first answer to that is going to be a no. I don't even expect a yes, right? Because I remember like in high school, I wanted to go to a certain university, wanted to go to US, and everyone said to me that, are you crazy? Like, you're not going. I did go. But the first answer wasn't a yes. And I think that makes you over time, firstly, learn not to care yeah. what other people think or say because they're wrong and you're right and you're, it's, it's going to be fine. You know, you're going to find your way through it. But also, I think it really helped me redefine what success is, what failure is, and how if you keep doing what you truly and authentically believe is right, other people will come on board. And if they don't, who cares? They don't I mean, cares. yeah, I think I think that's definitely a, a really, really important one. Resilience and, and the ability to get back up off the ground again and again <laughs> and again, even if you're being repeatedly kicked. I think that's the key thing here is resilience. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. It was so much fun speaking to you. You too. And I'm sure you've inspired a lot of people and given some sage advice. I know that you've certainly given me loads of advice. I feel like I want to have like a weekly with you now. <laughs> <laughs> it would be my pleasure. <laughs>